I want you to turn with me in your Bibles and to Romans chapter 5. We're going to read a few verses from here. And I'm going to just talk to you about some things that God has continued to lay up on my heart. And um, I'm, I'm just speaking to you out of Romans chapter 1 when it says that when they worshipped and served the creature more than the creator, that God handed them over to a reprobate mind and they did things that were not convenient. And we have moral confusion, social confusion, political confusion, gender confusion. We have every type of confusion in our in our world that you could possibly imagine And I believe that so much of it will go directly back to the fact that we have not worshipped God the way he deserves to be worshipped. And I'm not saying that there's a lack of worship because worship is exploding around America and Europe. There's a lot of worship going on. But a lot of times we worship the music. We might worship the superstars. We might worship the, the preachers. We might worship the gimmicks. But we have changed the worship of the uncorruptible God into an image like that of man. And we have not failed in worshiping. I just think there's a failure in worshiping God for who God is. And it's been my desire just to lift up the Lord and to be able to just proclaim God in many aspects of this. And I pray today that this would touch your heart. It really would. And that it would move you. God is a God to be feared. And God is to be feared in so many ways. Jesus made a statement and he said to the people, he said, don't fear man. Who has the ability to kill your body. But you need to fear God who can destroy both your body and soul in hell. Now Jesus Christ, the the son of God who came into the world to love the world. Gave us a very sound warning. Most people would not like to hear what Jesus just said. I don't want to hear that. But Jesus because he loved the world was willing to speak the truth to them. And that there needs to be a fear of God that causes us to be moved in regards to how holy he is and how lofty he is and how beautiful he is. God is not to be trifled with. He is to be respected and he is to be honored. He is to be honored in everything that we bring before him. Everything should be for him. Everything. And so we don't understand God. Um, We've been created in the image of God. But in the fall of man, we were greatly damaged. And in the fall of man and the damage that has occurred to us, we've lost that fear of God. We've lost the regard of God and the respect of God. And as a result of that, you know, a lot of things that we do in our worship, we, we, we demean God and we try to make him more human than he is divine. And there's a lot of dangerous things that are out there today, even socially and, and entertainment and television-wise, that is trying to humanize Jesus to such a degree that he's not really divine anymore. And there's just such a danger in that. And so I just want to say that God is God, and he is the judge of all things. And he is the judge of all men. He's the judge of the quick and the dead. And many do not understand God's judgments because... To be a matter of fact, we're not just. None of us are just. But God is just. And he will judge with a righteous judgment. We have no concept of what is right judgment because we have not seen what is holy. And you really can't have a good judgment against things that are unholy if you haven't seen the holy. There's not a standard that you have to base your judgment upon. It is just simply your reckoning of things. We do not know how far we have fallen. We do not know the weight of our sin. We do not know the magnitude of our offense against God. We don't know the consequences of our transgressions that have already set things in motion. Our actions of rebellion that has caused the universe to be affected by our decisions. We just think it's us or it's me or it's mine. The Bible does not depict anyone when they stand before God being judged by God in the book of Revelation and elsewhere Nowhere in the Bible does it depict anybody standing before God's judgment and saying to God, you are wrong. But as a matter of fact, every human that stands before God is going to fall before him and praise him that his judgments are right. Even everybody that accuses God on earth right now of injustice or a lack of this or a lack of love, they're going to fall before God when they see the holy And they're going to declare him righteous and his judgments righteous. When men see God, everything is going to change. And the problem is, is that we have failed to see God. And the Lord has given us the Holy Spirit that we might see the Lord. 
And yet there are so few, even in Pentecostal churches, so few people that have a real relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. And um, and so that's to our detriment. But I believe God's changing that. And I believe hungry hearts are being changed by a real infilling of the Holy Spirit and the power of God upon their life. I remember years ago, I was talking to a girl that was visiting our church on Wednesday nights. And she was a seeker. She wasn't a believer. She was just somebody seeking. She'd come to us from one of the universities. And, and as she was here, she got into a conversation with me one night. And she said, I just, the difficulty that I'm facing is how a God of love can send people who have committed a sin to eternal hell. And you will say to me, as, as a Christian, you would say to me that the slightest offense is worthy of eternal damnation. The slightest offense that is done, to which we as Christians would say, that is absolutely correct. The soul that sins, it shall die. And that is separation from God, and it is going to be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever and ever and ever. And she said, so you see, I just think that is unjust. I think that is too harsh, and I cannot believe a God would bring that kind of judgment upon his creation. I mean, eternally is just... Too much. And it doesn't seem to be right. And I was just praying as to how I was going to answer this girl. And I believe the Lord gave me an answer for her. It was an answer for her. Some of you are not going to like this answer because this answer makes sense. And you don't like it when answers make sense that give you an opportunity to be angry. But the answer that I gave this girl is I said, if you and I were on the street. And we were just standing on the sidewalk and. Somebody walked up to us and we're all sitting there and they entered into our group and all of a sudden they just started piddling with the ground and they noticed an ant crawling on the sidewalk and they they reached down and they just get the ant to crawl up on their finger and the ants crawling on their finger and they just roll that ant up and just toss it to the side. What should be done to them? Should they be punished? Should they go to jail? Should they be tried? Should they pay a fine? And she said, no, nothing should be done to them. And I'm like, why? It's a life. What if you had found that ant on Mars? Oh, my gosh. And you had done something to that because it was from Mars. I mean, just, you know, the, the travesty it would have been. She said, it's an ant. It just is irrelevant. It's just an ant. And I said, same situation. We're on the street, on the sidewalk, and somebody walks up to us, and we're talking, and all of a sudden, I know this is kind of crude, but it's what the Lord had put him, I think the Lord put in my heart to say, somebody's walking up in a baby stroller and the person that walked up to us takes the baby out and just throws the baby onto the sidewalk and takes his life. And I said, what should be done to that person? She said, I think they should be killed. I said, wow, that's a severe judgment. That's a severe judgment. Why would that be, why would that person be worthy of death? And a person who kills an ant has no consequences whatsoever. She said, because it's an ant. I said, that's not why. I said, do you know why you would want the death of that person that threw that baby down? Because that baby is created in the image of God. In that child, in that human, are semblances of something that's holy. And you are willing to take the life of another person because they took the image of God away from that little baby. But there's no image of God in that ant, but life is in the ant. But you place no value on that ant because the image of God is not in it. What do you suppose you will do when you see God face to face? And we have transgressed against his holy nature. And his holy desires. And we realize for the first time in our life how far we've actually fallen. How devastated we've become because of the fall. And she said, I can't respond to you because now I'm angry with you. And I said, why are you angry with me? And she said, because it makes sense to me. It's something that I have to deal with now. And I didn't want to have to deal with that. But now they have to deal with that. And so I ask you this question, or my title this morning is, God, who are you? And I pray that the Holy Spirit will help us see just a little bit into who God is. Many aspects of God, this is not a comprehensive message this morning on who God is. This is a glimpse at one aspect of God, if you will. And so there was a time when Jesus was with his disciples, and as 
People who like to sow division usually do. They don't go to the head man. They don't go to the pastor. They're going to go to a thousand other people or a dozen other people before they ever go to the pastor. They say, why does the church do this? Why does the church do that? Why does this happen? Why does that? And they're going to go to everybody and try to sow some discord. So the Pharisees go to the disciples instead of Jesus. Jesus was right there. They could have gone to him. He says, why do you eat with sinners and publicans? But they didn't. They went to the disciples and they said to the disciples, why does your master eat with publicans and sinners. And Jesus being the man who he is. Certainly not a coward. Understanding what they were saying. Interposed himself upon that conversation. And he said. I want to tell you something. And you go learn what this means. But I did not come for the whole. But I came for those that were sick. And I will have mercy. And not sacrifice. For I have come. Now you're talking about God. In the heart of God. But I have come. Not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And that reveals something to us about God. It reveals something to us that shows us Jesus' affection and Jesus' desires for all men. Now the sad truth is he was speaking to all sinners. The Pharisees were just as much sinners as everyone else. They just didn't know it. They didn't know they were sick. They didn't know they were broken. They didn't know that they were not whole. And they thought they would be the kind of men that Jesus would hang around with and Jesus would be close to. And so we come to this in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, and it says, therefore, which ties us back to chapter 4. And I just want to read that last verse of chapter 4. Jesus was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. So please understand this. Jesus went to the cross bearing our sins. And he suffered on the cross for our sins that through his blood, our sins could be removed. Not just covered, but removed. And God even promises, I will remember them no more. So Jesus went to the cross bearing our offense, our sins. And he paid the full price of God's wrath. Then he rose again. And in the resurrection of Jesus, there is the continuation of this this victory that Jesus won for us, and that is because he lives, he is justifying us, which is fabulous. It's absolutely phenomenal. I mean, if we really knew the holiness of God, like God has betrayed to us in his word, if we really understood just a, 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 a minuscule aspect of God's holiness and the wrath that is upon sinners because of their sin and the judgment of God that's going to be poured out on them, and to hear that there's a way that you as a sinner could be just with God, you could be justified, you could be made just from your transgressions, who would not want to hear that? And then to think that Jesus Christ came into the world, not to call the righteous to him, but to call publicans and sinners to him. My God, what hope. What hope there is for everybody. What a God. I mean, what a heart. What an incredible redeemer this God must be. And so in chapter 5, verse 1, therefore being justified by faith, not by works or anything of that nature, but being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank God for the peace that we have with God because we're justified by faith. In in verse 8, but God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And what God would give his son in death? Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. I'm reminded of a passage in Hebrews 7 that he is able to save to the uttermost. Aren't you glad? A lot of us, if not all of us, are uttermost people. He is able to save to the uttermost those that come to God by him. Because he ever lives to make intercession for them. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom We have now received the atonement. One man brought death. Jesus Christ, one man brings life. And the salvation of God is a miracle of God to everyone who will simply believe that Jesus Christ has been sent into the world for broken people who are sick 
and suffering and sin. And he will become their friend and he will save them and make them just with God. That is incredible. That is absolutely phenomenal of what God will do. The Bible tells us that we need to do the truth. This is found in John 3, the famous passage, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but through him the world might be saved. But this is the condemnation that light has come to the world, but men have loved darkness more than light. Therefore, that condemnation comes. But he says, those that do truth come to the light that their deeds might be exposed. So, beloved, I want to say something to you this morning. Listen to me very carefully because I want you to have a right concept of this holy God. This holy God has holy love. This holy God demands justice. This holy God demands righteousness. This holy God cannot wink at sin. He cannot ignore it nor excuse it. He must judge it in its fullest sense and he will judge it completely. This holy God of righteousness and truth and mercy and kindness and love was willing to pour out all of his judgment upon his own son, Jesus Christ, who would suffer in your place and you would be identified in him in his death so that you could pass from death to life without ever tasting the wrath of God. But if you do not put your faith in Jesus Christ and believe on him as the only means of salvation, as the only way to the Father, as the only hope of everlasting life, then you are still in your sins. And the cup of your sin is becoming full. And there will come a point in your life where God will pour that wrath out upon you. He gives you a way of escape, but if you don't receive it, he will pour his wrath out upon you, even though Jesus has come and given his life for us. And God beckons us to come. You're at church this morning in a service where a preacher is telling you on behalf of God, don't die in your sins, but believe on Jesus and receive eternal life and receive the justice of God. You can't walk out of here and stand before God one day in heaven and say, it's not fair. You never told me. I told you today. Told you today. You know today. And so we cannot bring an accusation against God in that. But you have to understand it if we don't repent and come to the light and do truth and own our sin and own our iniquity that God, it wasn't them and I'm not passing the buck to someone else. I have sinned against you. And we're exposed before God. He gives us mercy, not judgment. He forgives us. He gives us he gives us freedom, not condemnation when we do that. But that's something that men cannot understand. We can't understand God's judgments because we're fallen and we can't understand how God can be just and 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 ignore us because we're fallen. We don't understand how this God could be legally just in forgiving us of our sins when we repent and believe on his son, Jesus Christ. And then he tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, it says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. So where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. And I just love this. I just want to say this. And I want to go to 1 John chapter 4. I would love for you to turn there with me. There's some scriptures I really would like for you to read with me this morning. 1 John chapter 4 is one of them that I want to come to. And so these Pharisees confronting Jesus' disciples, and they're asking the disciples, why does your master eat with publicans and sinners? And Jesus very clearly says, that's who I came for. That is who Jesus is attracted to. I'm sorry, but if you think you're righteous, and you think you're good, And you think you're noble. Jesus is not attracted to you. You're on your own. But if you're a sinner. Or a publican. He's attracted to you. He has mercy. Upon you. I was looking up the word this morning. Publican. What does that mean? I've read it. You know. but, But what does it mean? And some of the definitions said a publican was somebody that owned a pub. A A A bar. Or whatever it might be. I don't know how true that is. But then I was 
understanding that there was one definition that Jesus gave when two men went to pray and one was a, a righteous man and the other was a publican. And so I derived from Jesus' definition is the publican is the person that's just like, I'm too bad for God. I'm too bad. I've sinned too much. I'm too evil. I'm too wicked. I'm too far gone. I'm the helpless case. I've sinned one too many times. And all they can cry for is mercy. That's the publican. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're a publican or maybe you just know that you're a sinner. And what is God's affections to you? First John chapter four. And he tells us this so beautifully. <clears throat> In verse nine, in this was manifested the love of God toward us. Because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. <clears throat> Here in his love, not that we loved God. but That he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He, he loves those that don't love him. And so when you are broken and you are sick and you are not whole and you are engulfed with sin and you have fallen to the bottom of the dregs of immorality or anything of that condition and maybe you just don't even think you're that bad but you know you're a sinner. You're the one right now that Jesus is attracted to. And he's attracted to you with a heart that is full of mercy and a heart that is full of care for your life. I want to say this to somebody this morning. I believe the Holy Spirit told me to mention this. That there's people, not just one, but there are people here are listening to this. That have made vows to Satan. And you believe because you've made those vows to Satan. That you are bound to those vows. And you can never be free from them. You made a covenant with the devil. And there are people that literally do that, and some of you are in this room that have done that. And you have embraced a life of cursing, and a life of curses, and bad luck, and hardship upon your life, because you know somewhere in your mind or your spirit, I made a vow to Satan, and I will pay for this for the rest of my life. I want to declare to you in the name of Jesus Christ, from the authority of Scripture, especially from the book of Isaiah... That God says, I break the covenant that you've made with death. I break it. And the Bible says that we are redeemed, which means that Jesus bought us back. So if you've sold your soul to the devil, Jesus bought it back. You're no longer under that bondage. You're no longer under that fear. You're no longer under that tyrant. Quit living, expecting the curses of life. And come into a relationship with a heavenly father that wants to care for you and bless you in your life. I know that I'm speaking to some people here this morning who feel that they're doomed. You could never be too bad for God. Never. He saves to the uttermost those that come to God by him. Now I want to read another scripture with you and then I'm going to go to Exodus 24. And please, you please follow me in these verses. In the book of Luke chapter 6. I just want you to see God in Luke chapter six, verse 32. The Bible says this, and I just want you to see God's nature. For if you love them, which love you, what thank have you for sinners also love those that love them. And if you do good to them, which do good to you. What thank have you? For sinners also do even the same. And if you lend to them of whom you hope to receive, what thank have you? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies and do good and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great and you shall be the children of of the highest, for he is kind to the unthankful and to the evil. Can you get that? God, kind to the unthankful and to the evil. Be therefore merciful, 
as your father also is merciful. Now, regardless of what people are, regardless of how your daddy treated you, regardless of what some church did to you, regardless of what preachers have done to you, God is merciful and God is kind and God is good and God loves those who don't love him. And the disposition of God's heart is to show mercy and not judgment. To be kind and not evil. To give even if he knows you'll never give it back to him. God loves to be approached upon. And so there's a story in the Bible. And the Bible says this, that the Son of Man has come. Eating and drinking. And you call him. A glutton and a wine-bibber. And again, the friend of sinners and publicans. But wisdom is going to be known of its children. And there was a man there who was a Pharisee named Simon. Who appealed to Jesus and he said, would you come to my house tonight and have a meal with me? And Jesus accepted Because he'll accept anybody's invitation. And so Jesus goes to Simon's house. And when Jesus was set down to eat. There was a woman of the city. She had heard that Jesus was at Simon's house. And she was a sinner. And she went into the house of Simon. And she began By standing behind Jesus. And she was attracted to his feet. And then without care. She's facing him. And his feet. And she cannot compose herself. She's weeping. And her tears are falling upon his muddy feet. And she's got some ointment and she opens it and she begins to put this on Jesus. And she takes her hair and she just begins to dry his feet with her hair. Getting all that mud from the city in her hair. And after she had cleaned his feet, she just stayed there in that posture and she was just kissing his feet. Simon. Came to this conclusion within himself, of course. He would not say this out loud. This guy. Well, I know he's not a prophet now. Because if he were a prophet, he'd know this woman's a sinner. He would never let her touch him. But Jesus, being a prophet, said, Simon, I need to ask you something. Simon said, sure, Jesus. What do you want to ask me? He said, Two men were in debt to one man. One was in debt for a thousand dollars. The other was in debt for ten. And the man called them both together. And he said, listen, I just want you to know, guys, you're forgiven of your debt. And Jesus said to Simon, he said, Simon, tell me which one of those men would love the master most. And Simon said, I suppose the one who was forgiven a thousand dollars. And he said, you're right. You're exactly right. I came to your home. Sat at your table. You didn't even kiss me hello. You didn't anoint my head with oil. And you never washed my feet. But from the moment this woman walked in, she has not stopped anointing me and worshiping me and kissing me and cleaning my feet. Do you see this woman, Simon? Though her sins are many, daughter, you are forgiven. For you have loved much. And they were in the room saying, who is this that can forgive sin? But Jesus doesn't need their support. He says, daughter, get up. Your faith has saved you. And 
He released her from a life of bondage to a life of righteousness. And there's Jesus, not ashamed of a sinner in the room of holy men. I was reading that and I just put down, everybody wants to go to the dinner, but nobody wants to go to the feet. Everybody will go to church. Few people will go to an altar. Everybody likes to go to the dinner, sit there and hear something, but I don't want to get close enough to kiss Jesus. I don't want to get close enough to anoint the head. I don't want to have to get close enough at an altar where I'm crying and weeping and all over Jesus' feet and kissing him. Not that he's in this particular place, but everywhere Jesus went, he called people out. That woman didn't go and just take a seat at the table. She got on her face at his feet. And she worshipped him. The problem with the church world today, if we knew how holy this God was, and we had any type of respect and honor to God, we would be so full of praise, and we would be so full of thanksgiving, and we would be so full of love that we could not contain as we poured it out upon Jesus. For he has come and forgiven us sinners. Coldness and the callousness of our heart is nothing like our Heavenly Father. Nothing at all like Him. Just look at Him on a cross. Aren't you glad He didn't stop in a manger? Aren't you glad He didn't get close enough to just the Garden of Gethsemane and say, Father, this is enough. No, let's go all the way. Let's go to the altar. His altar is the cross, and that's our altar, is the cross. So I'm going to come to this, and we'll conclude with this. This is in Exodus 24, and stay with me quickly, if you will. Verse 9, then went Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. Now, verse 10, they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel, he laid not his hand. Also, they saw God and did eat and drink. They saw God, they saw into heaven. And they saw the glory of God. That's what the sapphire stone is and and the body of heaven in its clearness. The streets of gold like glass. They're seeing into it. And they see God. Do you understand me? That they see God. Now just stay with me. Because who God, who are you? Is what we're really coming to. And this is so beautiful. In Exodus, if you will. I want you to turn to chapter 32. And I want you to notice verse 11 with me. Exodus 32, 11. And Moses besought the Lord as God. And he said, Lord, why does your wrath wax hot against your people? Which you have brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say for mischief did he bring them out to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your fierce wrath and repent of this evil against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac and and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self. You said to them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven in all this land that I have spoken of. Will I give to your seed and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. That's not evil like we think it's just the judgment that God was going to bring against them. Now keep your place here in Exodus and go to Deuteronomy if you will. And I want you to see something very important just so we can understand the context of this. Deuteronomy chapter 9. Moses is in the mountain with God. He's receiving the Ten Commandments. While he's receiving the Ten Commandments, the nation of Israel is down in the valley and they're creating the golden calf. And they're telling everybody this is the golden calf. And God is telling Moses, I'm going to destroy the people. And that's what Moses is saying in Exodus 34. God, why are you going to destroy them? So Moses comes down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments and he sees the the sinfulness of the people and the transgressions of the people. And this is Moses' eyes. This is how he sees it. And I want you to see it in verse 16, Deuteronomy 9. And I looked and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God and you and and, and made you a, a molten calf. You had turned it aside. You had turned aside quickly out of the way which the Lord commanded you. 
He took the two tables and he cast them out of my hands and broke them before your eyes. And I fell down before the Lord as at the first 40 days and 40 nights. I didn't eat bread or water, drink water because of all your sins, which you've sinned and doing wickedly in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure wherewith the Lord was wroth against you to destroy you. And the Lord hearkened unto me at that time also. And the Lord was very angry with Aaron to have destroyed him. And I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. I took your sin, the calf which you made, and burnt it with fire and stamped it and ground it small. Even until it was as small as dust. And I cast the dust thereof into the brook that descended out of the mouth that just took it away from us. It says in verse 24, you've been rebellious from the, against the Lord from the day that I knew you. I fell down before the Lord 40 days and 40 nights praying for you. I prayed, therefore, to the Lord God, don't destroy your people, verse 26. This is your inheritance. God, you've redeemed them. Don't destroy them. God, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Oh, God, don't bring this against this stubborn people. Oh, God hears him and God honors the prayer of Moses. And then if you go back to the book of Exodus, please, I just want you to see this. In Exodus chapter 32, he comes and he says this in verse 31. Exodus 32, 31. And Moses returned unto the Lord. He's, he's just did Deuteronomy 9. He's in front of him. He broke the commandments. He's, he, he removed the, the transgression of the false calf. And now he goes back into the mountain with God. Verse 31, Moses returned to the Lord. And said, oh, this people has sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, and if not, blot me out, I pray you, out of your book which you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, whosoever has sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. And we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Chapter 34. I want you to see this. Verse 5. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by. Just notice that. Verse 6. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting in the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, upon the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth in worship. Then I want you to read, if you will, one more passage of scripture. It's in Numbers 14. And this is after Israel went and spied the land. And the 12 spies came back and gave a false report. And the children of Israel didn't want to go into their promise. And God was angry again. And God was going to destroy them all. But I want you to notice how Moses prays. Numbers 14 verse 11. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people provoke me? How long will it be ere they believe me? All the signs which I have shown them, I will smite them with pestilence, I'll disinherit them, I'll make you a greater nation and mightier than them. And Moses said to the Lord, and he, he begins to plead. But this is what I want you to see, verse 17. And now I beseech you. Let the power of my Lord be great, according as you have spoken. Saying, the Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity, transgression, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. Pardon, I beg you, the iniquity of this people, according to the greatness of your mercy. That's what he learned when he was in the rock. That's what God told him when he was in the rock. And Moses takes the declaration of God and who he is back to God. When God's people are worthy of wrath. And he intercedes with them on the basis of who God is. 
God listens to him. And so I just want to give you this scenario. Please understand this because God has never changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Moses lived his whole life under the grace of God. Moses is the lawgiver, but he's not the one who invented the law. Moses didn't come up with the law. He just delivered it. But he lived his whole life under grace. He lived his whole life walking with God without any knowledge whatsoever of the law. He lived like Abraham lived. He would live like Melchizedek lived. He would live like Job lived, just walking with God in faith and God being with him because God was a God who answered faith. And as Moses is walking with God and he's up in the mountain, I want you to understand that he's receiving the Ten Commandments from God. And while he's up in the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments from God, Aaron and the elders of Israel are down in that valley making a golden calf and have the audacity to tell the nation of Israel, these are your God. This is your God who delivered you out of Egypt. And why do I say that? Because a few moments earlier, Aaron and these elders look into heaven and they see God. And they know God's not a golden calf. And they lead the nation of Israel into this sin and into this abomination that stirs up the very wrath of God himself. And Moses Pleading with God because in the mountain God's saying my people have sinned and I'm going to destroy them. And God, Moses says, please God, don't destroy them. And God sends Moses down into that valley. And Moses sees it. He sees it and he says, oh my God, they've sinned so great. They've made false gods. And they're worshiping them. Moses breaks the Ten Commandments. Do you know why? To keep it under grace. If I impose these Ten Commandments upon you right now, you're all dead. And Moses goes back up into that mountain and he says, God, forgive them. But if you won't forgive them, blot me out too. My God, what an intercessor. Moses knew what he was doing. Keep it on the ground of grace. If I bring a law in here that's going to condemn every single one of these Israelites They're guilty before the law of God and he doesn't judge them. Then what good is this anyway? He would judge them and they would all be destroyed. Moses goes and he confronts Aaron and he he takes the golden calf and he beats it and and he crushes it and he burns it and he grinds it to a powder and he throws it into the river. What is he doing? I'm, I'm, I'm doing everything I can to get the evidence of your sin out of here, Aaron. If you could have seen God in that mountain, how angry he was. Aaron, God was coming to kill you. I stood before you, Aaron. And I begged God to show you mercy. Oh my God, what an intercessor. A man. A man taking hold of God. God listening to that man. My God. Moses goes back up into the mountain with God. Another 40 days and nights. God rewrites the Ten Commandments. Gives there a covenant of mercy and a mercy seat that he's going to be able to put it in. And God says to Moses, I'm not going with you. I'll send an angel. I'm not going with you. These people are stiff-necked. They're rebellious. I'll destroy them. And Moses says to God, wait a minute. An angel is not sufficient. You have to go with us. And he says, God, I implore you. If I have found grace. That's all Moses has known. is grace. If I have found grace in your sight. Show me your glory. Oh God, I need to know who you are. I need to know what you are. God says, tomorrow, Moses, I'll come and meet with you. Beside me, there's a rock. And in the cleft of that rock is a place you can hide. I'll put you in it and I'll put my hand over you. And I'll walk by and as I walk by, I will proclaim to you my essence. And I'll walk past and I'll take my hand away and you can look at my back parts. Sanctify yourself, Moses. You've asked for audience with me and you're going to have it. 
I don't think Moses could have slept that night. And that rock is Jesus. What a hiding place. And only in Jesus can you rightly see God. And Moses hides in this. I don't know why I'm pointing to this. It's not a rock. pulpit. But if I could get in this. Moses is in here. And he's hiding in that rock. And you could just probably imagine the essence of God's presence as he's approaching. And Moses can see there's no hand on it. But all of a sudden it gets a little bit dark. And that hand comes over that rock. Moses is God's on the other side of that. God declares to Moses his essence. The Lord. The Lord God. Merciful. Oh, I could just imagine Moses and that rock going, I knew it. Knew he was merciful. Gracious. Compassionate. Forgiving iniquity and sin. I could just see Moses in that rock. Yes, God. I knew that's who you were. I knew that's what you were. Kind and good and merciful. And no, you won't excuse the wicked, but you'd pardon them if they would repent. Sure, you'll visit the sins upon the generations. But if anybody in that generation stops the sin, then blessing will come. Oh, God, I knew this is who you were. I knew this is who you were. I know you wanted mercy rather than wrath. Moses understands that. And then from that point on, whenever there's rebellion in Israel and and a need to confront with God, what does Moses do? God, remember what you said. You're merciful. You're compassionate. You forgive iniquity. You're good. Oh, God, remember what you said. I know you said that you would judge the wicked. But God, remember you said you'd forgive too. And God heard him all if we could know that God. Not to be trifled with. To be so celebrated. My God, why is he not celebrated more in Pentecostal churches? Why is he not celebrated more in sinners who have been made whole? Lost people who have been found. What to God we had just an ounce of love that woman had when she went into Simon's house. Thank God for the women who tend to Jesus. Churches would be practically dead without those women. Pour their heart and their love and their affections out upon the Lord. Oh, to God, He's worthy. Merciful. Compassionate. Stirred up for you. So, I come to this conclusion. It's not even 1230. No, you're doing good. I come to this conclusion. And that's two minutes fast. But I'm not going to take advantage of you, okay? <laughs> Jesus had been ministering. And Brianna, just keep it quiet for just a moment. But thank you for being ready. Jesus had been ministering all day to the crowds. When the ministry was over, he sent his disciples onto the cross of the sea, Sea of Galilee. And he stayed where he was. To get the people safely on their way. And after they were gone. He went up into the mountain to pray. He was with his father into the night. The disciples were on the Sea of Galilee. And they were in their boat. And they were laboring to get across the sea. Because the winds were against them. The sea was troubled. And in the night. At some point. Jesus was ready to go to the other side. The King James does not do this great service, but the truth is still there. The King James says he went to them, but it also says he would have passed them by. and That's not accurate. He went to them, and then it says he would have passed them by. More accurately says that he meant to pass by. What is he doing? I'm doing in the flesh what my father did to Moses in the rock. You're in this lake on this boat against these winds struggling to do what I asked you to do. And Jesus begins to take a stroll across that lake. 
He meant to draw near to them. He wanted them to see Him. Because now is the demonstration of God, not in the wind, not in the fire, but in the flesh. And now they will not only see the back parts of God, but they will see God face to face in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. And when they would see Him thinking this is a spirit, because this was, they knew this was not like a human walking on the water. There was glory. They cried. And He immediately came in unto them and delivered them. From their toil and their effort. And I say to you this morning. If you could only comprehend. In the smallest of ways. The insatiable compassion. That Jesus Christ has for you. You see all those sins that you're scared of. You see all those dark things about your life. You hope to God nobody ever finds out about? Jesus is not afraid to go there. You attract him. It's hard for us to imagine how a holy God can be attracted to sinners. Your brokenness attracts him. Your need for mercy Stirs up his bowels of compassion. Because he gets to be God to you. He gets to be savior to you. Know how he longs to be. But we hide. We try to pretend like the Pharisees were not that broken. How much better to be just deathly sick. How wonderful it is for Christians to not have to pretend to be perfect Christians. Because we all know you're not. Just be broken before the Lord and find Jesus Christ stepping right into your life where you're toiling so hard and shows you His glory. He's merciful and kind and majestic. 